This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's Johnny Gould. There really is no second-guessing what Baroness Ruth Deach needs. She's a plain speaker with depth, precision and refreshing clarity. Little wonder then that she's enjoyed a broad and varied career and held so many important roles. From bioethics to politics, governance to education, amid the undercurrent of technological and societal change. I'm gobsmacked that Donald Tusk was allowed to be president of uh, the European Council. He should sort out his own country before attacking Britain. As you'll hear, she has fervent views on Poland's lack of responsibility for their role in the Holocaust. Find out whether she's a Lever or a Remainer, and why Sir Richard Evans has form, as he caused a storm on Twitter coming out for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour in the 2019 general election. Sir Richard, remember, was an expert witness in the defence of Deborah Lipstadt when Holocaust revisionist David Irving sued her for libel. And yet he justified a vote for Corbyn as only Labour could beat Tory in his constituency. He's claimed to have changed his mind now after a New Statesman article by Anthony Julius persuaded him to do so. A former governor of the BBC, principal of St Anne's College, Oxford, chair of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, a qualified lawyer, Ruth chaired the Bar Standards Board as well. She's the daughter of Holocaust survivor, the historian and journalist Josef Frenkel, also of the World Jewish Congress. David Bolkover, my interviewee in episode 11, The Captivating Story of Bella Gutman, bought a book recently, The Story of the Brilliant Robert Stricker, a prominent Viennese Zionist and one of the founders of Hakoa Vienna. He was murdered in Auschwitz in October 1944. The biography was written by Josef Frankel, Ruth's father. He'd signed a note inside, dated January 1950. Recently, she spoke out against the proposed Westminster Holocaust Memorial. Five Prime Ministers back it. By putting our National Holocaust Memorial and Education Centre next to our Parliament, we make a solemn and eternal promise that Britain will never forget what happened in the Holocaust. There can be no more powerful symbol of our commitment never to forget the Holocaust than that we should create, right at the heart of our democracy, a permanent memorial and a learning centre so that we understand what we failed to do in the 1930s and understand also that we should never ever allow evil to triumph over good. The Holocaust is one of the most evil acts in history. It must never be forgotten. A memorial near to the House of Commons reminds us what happens when democracy fails. It's a lesson neither this generation nor the next should ever forget. Anti-Semitism and hate did not end in 1945. Unfortunately today, some of this poison is back from the political fringe to parts of the political mainstream. So it's absolutely right that this new national memorial is situated right next to Parliament so that we can show what happens when racism and prejudice go unchecked. There were really two things that altered my thinking. The first was taking my children to Berlin and seeing the national memorial they have there and seeing the effect it had on my children and thinking, why don't we have something as significant, as substantial here in Britain? The second thing was the immense privilege as Prime Minister of meeting 
Holocaust survivors and hearing their stories firsthand and realizing that there would come a time when those survivors wouldn't be there to tell those stories. That's why I set up the Holocaust Commission in January 2014 and that's why I'm so delighted that they recommended this incredible national memorial at the heart of our democracy. Admirable words, but Baroness Dietsch's reply, Holocaust memorials, very sadly, don't appear to do anything to hold back the spread of anti-Semitism. I'm not saying we shouldn't have another one, but you've got to stop and think what it's supposed to achieve. She says it'll impact negatively on the gardens of Parliament. She doesn't mind another one, though, just not there. We've got a half a dozen of them around the country already, she says, whatever the well-meaning intentions. And so we had a good half hour to reflect on a great deal. So I started by asking Ruth to reflect on how things are now and how they were when she first set out. Well, there are two elements to this. If you're interested in the Jewish angle, what is very distressing is that once I left school, which wasn't always very pleasant, I didn't have any problems at all until I found myself in the House of Lords uh, 14 years ago. And suddenly, the old anti-Semitic tropes and problems were back there staring me in the face. I could have let it go. After all, 10% uh, of the members of the House of Lords are Jewish. 10%? That's astonishing, really. And most of them get on with pursuing their interests. But there are a few of us, like me, who simply cannot let go and stand up to that. So that's one big change. I suppose the other is um, being a woman uh, a whole lot easier and more interesting and free than it was when I was very young. I could mention more changes like um, the internet, but really that's just to do with uh, communications. Um, so I think really from my own position, the Jewish angle and, and the feminine angle, yes. Now your life and career has been linked so very much with St Anne's College Oxford as a student, where you got a first in law, returning as a tutorial fellow and elected as the principal. There's even a building named after you. Tell us about what St Anne's means to you. I think I hold the world record for having made nine attempts to get into Oxford or Cambridge, because in those days you could try both, which you can't now. The corollary is it's a world record for persistence. <laughs> I suppose so, but I was determined to do it. I thought it was the only way to claw my way out of South London. Um, and uh, it took me three years and nine attempts including one year at the LSE, which uh, I abandoned. Um, so it was indeed very important to me. Oxford gave me a chance, despite my very spotty academic record. I knew I could do it if they let me have a go. So it was very important to me. Um, in those days, there were only five women's colleges. There were seven times as many men at Oxford as women. So an awful lot of bright women were not getting places and some of the men perhaps weren't up to it. Nevertheless, it was the foundation of my career. I met my husband there. Many of my best friends, our best friends, even today, date from those Oxford days. Uh, the Jewish society wasn't too orthodox, otherwise I think I would have found it difficult. But there were very many people there who became close friends, who today are lawyers, uh, doctors, academics, and so on. Um, so it was indeed the foundation of a good career. 
And because of that, it was a springboard to my teaching in Canada, getting a job at the Law Commission, and then, of course, teaching at Oxford itself. And being a woman wasn't a handicap. In fact, people helped me, I think, because in those days, suddenly the barriers were coming down, and if there was a woman, they, they sort of gave you a chance. So, yes, it was very important to me, yes. Can I just rewind to something you said in that answer there, talking about I needed to claw myself out of South London... Can I ask you, is social mobility more difficult today for kids in their teens and 20s than it was when you were that age? Well, yes, it is, but you may have misunderstood what I meant by clawing my way out of South London. I didn't really need social mobility, but my father was a refugee. Um, I lost grandparents in the Holocaust, and my parents were very intellectual and cultured, but they had inadvertently found themselves in a cultural oasis in Clapham, in South London, and it rather amuses me now to find that Clapham has been gentrified, which it wasn't. And I felt that I wasn't going to mix in the right sort of um, intellectual and Jewish circles unless I somehow got out of, uh, got out of London. Um, social mobility is, of course, much more difficult today, in part because of the government's abolition of the maintenance grant when I was young, indeed up until quite recently, you could be born in London, say, want to study in Manchester, and the government will give you a grant for your living costs. These days, so many students are not very well off. A lot of them, I believe at least half, find themselves obliged to stay at home to study. So if you're born in, say, Birmingham, uh, you go to school in Birmingham, you go to university in Birmingham, you'll probably get married in Birmingham, never move around. And that does make social mobility much more difficult because those who leave home to study uh, have been shown statistically to do better in life and will, of course, meet a much wider range of people because they've been able to choose the university that suits them and the course that suits them. And the government used to pay for that and doesn't anymore and many of us are pressing for the return of the maintenance grant not to be confused with tuition fees that's a different element so that was what I meant by moving and social mobility I'm so glad that you picked Birmingham I am from Birmingham my grandparents were refugees from Vienna they were lumped in Birmingham because Viennese aliens and Berlin aliens were not allowed to be near the coast and uh, we had other family in Nottingham for a similar reason uh, and they found their way around. But there has been a brain drain, hasn't there, over the last 25 years, to the point where also um, I've ended up in London in a very similar fashion. Well, my daughter, born in Oxford, chose to study in London at, at UCL. Um, I think Jewish students who want to be prominent and active in Jewish or Zionist affairs and that is by no means everybody, it may be only a small minority, have to choose their universities quite carefully today because uh, many universities are now providing a rather hostile environment for Jewish students. I'm not saying for a moment that a Jewish student shouldn't go to university and college of their choice, regardless of the atmosphere, but if they have a choice, or at any rate they ought to be forewarned that many universities are hosting very unpleasant anti-Zionist activities and anti-Jewish activities. And it's something that a Jewish student should be braced for if they want to be active. I wouldn't blame anyone who just wants a quiet social three years and doesn't want to get involved. 
But if you do want to stick your neck out, you've got to be quite courageous in some of these universities. I think we were all shocked as Sir Richard Evans, expert defence witness for Deborah Lipstadt against revisionist David Irving, came out for Labour last week and then abruptly changed his mind under the welter of a Twitter storm. What's happened to British academia? Why are universities becoming such a hive for groupthink, for anti-Semitism? What's happened? Well, universities are groupthink for a whole lot of things, you know, probably Brexit, climate change and so on. Uh, But Richard Evans was, in a way, actually not surprising to me. Of course, we admire him and will always be grateful for the evidence that he gave in the Lipstadt case. Here are Sir Richard Evans' own recollections of that trial. In the end, this has turned out to be the second great uh, trial uh, on the Holocaust. The first was the Eichmann trial in 1961. And in that trial, the prosecution of the major organiser of the of the Holocaust, the implementation of the Holocaust, large numbers of Holocaust survivors came to the witness stand and told in incredibly moving terms of their experience. That's 1961. That's only just a decade and a half after the end of the war. Now, uh, in, in the year 2000, it's very different. These are elderly people whose memories may not be, uh, may be very accurate uh, in, in some small respects. And uh, it was felt that to subject them to being cross-questioned by Irving, who conducted his own case, did not use a barrister, uh, by a man who clearly doubted or professed to doubt uh, that they'd been through the experiences they described, would have been uh, demeaning and upsetting for them, and uh, the team did not want to expose them to that. But there's a much bigger reason. Uh, what you have to do in the defence against a, a libel suit... So the libel suit is somebody says, that's defamatory, you're damaging my reputation, which it certainly did damage um, Irving's reputation, and it's not true. Uh, and what you do is you turn the tables on the accuser. You prove at enormous length that the brief remarks in Deborah Lipstadt's book, over seven, six pages, about Irving... Uh, that went uh, 2,000 pages of ex- expert testimony, you prove as much as you can that what she said was true. So you have to keep the spotlight on the accuser. The accuser becomes the accused. And that is the central tactic that's used in the trial. And this is explained, in fact, the, the argument between Deborah Lipset, who wants to call Holocaust deniers, and, uh, sorry, wants to call uh, Holocaust survivors to, to confront the denier, um, that the argument is her and, and the lawyers are saying, no, you do that, you take the spotlight off Irving, you put it on them. Deborah wanted to appear herself. No, because that will again take the focus off of Irving. It's got to be relentlessly uh, pursuit of, of Irving. But I was struck at Gresham College about four years ago. He's the provost of Gresham College. It's a part-time job, and Gresham College is an institution in the city where top-flight lectures are open to anyone who happens to be passing by. And lectures were advertised by one of the lecturers on Israel and war crimes. And I knew what was going to happen. I went and listened, and it was really quite appalling, inaccurate and prejudiced. And I complained to Richard Evans, and he wouldn't do anything about it at all. And that really shocked me, because those lectures were so patently... Um, unhistorical and provocative. So in a way I wasn't surprised, but it's an interesting example of how someone can understand Nazism more than anybody else 
and yet feel this way about Labour. He says he's changed his mind, but of course, who knows what goes on in the privacy of the voting booth. And I'm sure that an awful lot of very well-meaning people, um, in the end, won't care very much about anti-Semitism. They'll go in the booth and they'll vote Labour because that's a tribal allegiance. And I think that's really very sad. Let's move on to something of achievements now, something positive. And you say your proudest career achievement was when, as chair of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. You were central in the legislation and fostering of embryonic and stem cell research in the UK around the turn of the century. The ethics of playing God is a central theme. So how much do you think your Judaism has played in your role in ethics? Well, at the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority, in a way there wasn't that much scope for ethics because a lot of things are very carefully laid down by law. But I think something deep within me welled up when I saw the possibility of using this very important human discovery, scientific discovery, for the improvement of life and for life-saving possibilities. Uh, because the basic argument around stem cells was, especially in America where they didn't, didn't like it, that you're using embryos you are in fact destroying embryos in order to get stem cells, which may one day, probably after my lifetime, but it's already starting now, stem cells may be used one day to grow new heart tissue, new brain cells, new kidney cells, to cure diseases which are incurable now, and that's already starting. And I think when I was faced, and of course it wasn't my decision, it was the whole body and the government, between destroying embryos which probably would never have been used and using that technology for the saving of life, it seemed to me that the saving of life was very important. And I think that fits within um, the Jewish views about medicine and how mankind uses its intellect to improve human life, to maybe improve God's creation, perfect God's creation, keep people healthy. Life-saving comes before anything else. I want to say shakoyach after that. Uh, I, I really do. And uh, the former chief rabbi, Lord Jacobovitz, argued that Judaism supports the absolute sanctity of life. So the question is, does that theologically delegitimize the medical practices such as euthanasia and even late-term abortions? I haven't really gone into that field uh, I've always been a proponent of abortion. I was an impressionable teenager in the late 50s when Roy Jenkins was pushing for reform of suicide law, divorce law, abortion law, and so on. So I would always stand up for easy abortion, which I think should be a woman's choice. And also I've changed my mind about um, hastening the end of life. I used to think that uh, assisted suicide was really too risky. But now that I'm older and I've seen people dying in a situation which is needlessly difficult and painful, I think I've come around to supporting assisted suicide at the end of life. I really don't know what the Jewish position is on that, but I personally am in favour of generous abortion laws and carefully safeguarded assisted suicide at the end of life for people who otherwise would spend their final weeks or months in great distress.
As the powers of scientific technology grow, humans are becoming more powerful than ever. And with the possibility of creating harmful reproductive technologies like gene editing, bioengineering, is there an ever an argument that we should stop? Where is, where is the red line? You say harmful. People are not agreed on what is harmful. There was a report by the, I think it was the Nuffield Council recently, chaired by a former colleague of mine, Professor Karen Jung, where she says that genetic editing one day may be all right, provided there are safeguards. Now, we've got to a situation now whereby if, for example, in your family, and this will affect a lot of Jewish people, in your family you have an inheritable disease, it is possible, instead of reproducing in the usual way, to produce embryos in the laboratory. And those embryos, when they're just a few days old, can be tested to see if they carry, for example, uh, cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs disease, other diseases, Huntington's disease. There are about 400 inheritable diseases that embryos can now be tested for. If it's shown that some of those embryos carry that disease, they can be discarded and the couple can use healthy ones. So I'm in favour of using embryonic technology to make sure that a couple who might otherwise be at risk of having a child with a dreadful disease can have a child that is healthy. The same goes for mitochondrial disease. The line that we're trying not to cross is choosing embryos, not because they're healthy, but because they have particular traits. Some people think, but I don't believe the technology exists yet, that you can choose an embryo that is super intellectual or super athletic or has blue eyes and blonde hair. I don't think we've got there yet. We might be able to one day, and I think that should probably be resisted because while it's natural to want a healthy child and an unhealthy child is in a way a diversion from the norm, I think wanting a child that's super intellectual or super pretty or super athletic raises expectations beyond what parents can possibly hope for. There's also the problem of expense. Edwina Curry, a former member of my college, wrote a novel years ago where, called The Ambassador, where she envisages a world where people who can afford it only have embryos developed in the lab and they're chosen for intellectual qualities high cheekbones, um, superior in every way. And ordinary people who can't afford it reproduce in the normal way. So you get a sort of underclass or ordinary class and a superior class. And I don't think we want that. I don't think we do either. It sounds like something that was cooked up in the 20th century that we had to fight for our freedom against. Um, can we talk about the media now? Now, you are a former governor of the BBC. What, in your opinion, is the BBC still good at? Is it still important in the cultural life of our country? Or perhaps is the private sector, ITV, News UK, the important media to act as the saviour of cultural pluralism? It's rather important to have uh, a, a, a free market media. Well, competition is important, but when all's said and done, I think it's very important to have a BBC that is funded by the licence fee payers because... If that doesn't exist, we would be prey to a competition that would only go down market, which would prefer exciting what may be fake news. And I think we still have to hand it to the BBC to get in-depth news coverage. I know some people say it's biased. I mean, that's, that's another story. What do you think? 
Is it biased? It can't help it, can it? If it hasn't got a profit motive, it can't help it, can it? I wouldn't say the BBC was biased. There is absolutely, I'm convinced, no institutional wish or ability or drive to be biased. But I wonder sometimes about the people who work for the BBC. When I was a governor, I called for a survey of staff to see how many had been educated privately. And it's, oh, no, 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 they wouldn't go there. I believe it's being carried out now. I think it's possible to argue that, as in many other areas of society, there is a sort of groupthink in the BBC. And certainly, over the years, I and you, and I'm sure all your listeners, will have found instances where the BBC has not been accurate in its coverage of Israel, for sure. During the Lebanon war, I was a governor, and I produced a list, I think, of 17 instances that I'd witnessed myself, not that other people had told me about, things I'd seen and heard that I knew to be inaccurate about the BBC's coverage of the Lebanon war, and all but one were rejected by the governors. I thought that was most unfortunate. Trying to get a complaint through the BBC is like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. <laughs> How does an innovator, a disruptor, take their business to the next level? Be inspired by great stories from the SME sector in my series dedicated to business. Johnny Gould's SME Walkabout, sponsored by Boost & Co. Interviews, features, stories, triumphs and tears from the commercial world. Search Johnny Gould's SME Walkabout on the podcast platform where you found this. Which brings us on to uh, parts of, uh, of Jewish leadership. Of course, you are a member of the Jewish Leadership Council. So maybe we can't get a complaint through the BBC, but maybe we can, can complain about the BBC and various other institutions of British society using the media, using uh, the Jewish Leadership Council, using the Board of Deputies. What is your opinion of the state of Anglo-Jewish leadership? Let me first pay a tribute to the campaign against anti-Semitism. A bit of an upstart, but they really got things going, that protest in Parliament Square and so on. Whereas the Board of Deputies and the JLC, uh, historically, have always been, you know, keep your head down, operate in the background. The Board of Deputies has, I think, improved enormously in the last few years and is much more outspoken. And the JLC is beginning to follow in its wake. But the trouble with Jewish leadership in this country, and I go back hundreds of years in this respect, is it has always been the province of self-appointed, extremely wealthy men. They are philanthropic. Our community couldn't do without them. But they have arrogated to themselves at the same time leadership, self-appointedly. By way of contrast, let's take Lord Wolfson, whose generosity I was very well aware of because he helped my college, he helped Oxford. He gave enormously to British society and Jewish charities, but he never set himself up as a Jewish leader. Whereas many of our so-called leaders today are people who gave money and therefore believe it's their right to be our leaders. And I don't think we have representative leadership. A few women are coming forward now, but it's still very much the province of the self-appointed wealthy. Ruth, um, I'm struck by uh, how similar our backgrounds are um, in the 20th century. Galicia, Vienna, Prague. My grandma accidentally left Europe 
for England via Prague. She was from Vienna as well. She got on a train, went to Budapest. She wasn't at a conference in Prague like your father. But there's this story that she flew into Britain via Prague at the beginning of September 1938. And... My grandma spent quite a lot of time with me uh, as a teenager explaining what had happened. She never hid it. Uh, her mourning for her murdered parents was apparent to me. It was never hidden. And uh, it was something that she was quite happy uh, to relate to me, to tell me uh, on a family basis. And so I'm wondering if, like me, you are infuriated by Poland's view of the Holocaust, that actually it should be disallowed. It, it wasn't our fault, it was them. We were overtaken by them. What do you make of that? Well, you know, Poland really should never have been admitted to the European Union. Just before Poland was admitted, they promised to pay restitution. At the last minute, they withdrew that on the ground they weren't well off enough, which is really ridiculous. Not only are you right about Holocaust denial of any part they may have played, but just today I was reading that Poland plans to make it a criminal offence to seek restitution or to offer restitution. Now, nobody like me is seeking full restitution of the property that was theirs in Poland, but some acknowledgement, a token, even a Solperstein, as the Germans have done. I've been back to the dreadful little village, Uschiki Dolny, that my father came from, that his, his, his brothers and sisters grew up in, albeit that his father was actually quite well off. Um, I've seen the property that was my family's. I've seen in Cracker the property that belonged to my mother's family. I went into this uh, block of flats, rather like a tenement in Cracker, you go in and there's a circular staircase going up to the top and they all came out and stared at me because I expect they're frightened, as many Poles are, that we might come and turf them out of their residences. No one's planning to do that. In fact, there are very many non-Jewish Poles who also lost their property. Um, the idea is simply to get Poland to face up to the fact that when three million Jews were removed from Poland, removed from their property, the state or their neighbours simply took it over without any acknowledgement of what they were doing at all. I remember when we had um, that dreadful bomb in the underground about 15 years ago, or when we have any terrorist incident in Britain and people are killed, can you imagine that their neighbours simply move into their property because they haven't shown up? I mean, you know, we just don't do that. But that's what happened in Poland. Their property was taken over. And Poland is not facing up to what's happened. And as far as Poland's place in Europe goes, they're going backwards. On judicial independence, freedom of the press, um, extremism, authoritarianism, I'm gobsmacked that Donald Tusk was allowed to be president of uh, the European Council. He should sort out his own country before attacking Britain. Poland and Hungary are sticking together. Europe can't do anything about Poland because Hungary will veto it and vice versa. Poland is even saying we will not take any migrants, let alone our share of them. We only take Christian migrants. When we don't want Muslims in our country. 
and no one is doing anything about this in Europe. It's one of the major failings of the European Union that Poland is allowed to get away with this 1930s attitude. It sounds very much like what my mother told me about Poland in the 1930s when she was living there. And I think Poland's record is a stain on the EU and we ought to be doing something about it. Lord Pickles is the British government's envoy for post-Holocaust issues. I want Lord Pickles to face up to Poland, demand restitution, demand commemoration of the properties where Jewish people lived. Finally, how much of a warning shot to Britain is what's going on in Poland and the rest of Eastern Europe? Are we in a democratic and institutional decline here? What future do we have? No, I think we're not. I think leaving Europe will be absolutely excellent because Europe's attitude to Israel and its slide towards banning circumcision, banning kosher and halal is a real warning shot. Our government tends to be much better on Israeli matters than Europe does generally. And I think our democracy, our tolerance of minorities will be refreshed and revived once we've left Europe. We will not be sucked into this uh, anti-Jew, anti-Israel populism, extremism, authoritarianism and so on that is creeping, indeed racing all over Europe. Baroness Ruth Deitch, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests recently. How about... Douglas Murray. Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, and known to some as the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, a journalist. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that, to be honest, really really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be to, to be truth tellers. Uh, so I am deeply concerned. Ex foreign affairs and diplomatic TV correspondent, now best-selling author Tim Marshall, on the power of geography. Basically, we just really need to try as hard as we can to understand the other side and and seek to. Uh, seek to make compromises. Um, I'll leave you with that. I actually think compromise is a beautiful word. Danny, the Mossad commander and the extraordinary story of the Red Sea Spies. Yeah, I wanted to tell you that because this is something I never, I think I never told anybody. Danny, this is very, very beautiful and I, <laughs> this is really going to be uh, an extraordinary interview. And former chief of staff at Number 10, who believes remaking conservatism can unite the country once more, it's Nick Timothy. Liberalism on one hand can simply mean a kind of pluralism, a commitment to one another that we know we're all a bit different and therefore we have, you know, we want to tolerate 
different ways of life and different views. And that that is the sort of the good side of liberalism, I think. The other side of liberalism is it, to- it tolerates difference uh, and it tolerates pluralism as a means of progress because the trial and error those things allow means that we get a an ever-improving society. And the danger of that is that once you think that you are set on a course of inevitable progress, then people who disagree with your view about the end point must be irrational, they must be nefarious, they must be, they're stopping uh, this inevitable positive change towards this ever more perfect society. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation. Buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.